Amen. I want to ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, and I welcome all those that are worshiping here in our celebration service, in our summit service a moment ago. We got to uh, see someone baptized, and so that was very special. We're thankful for those uh, also who are joining us online and on our broadcast. Ephesians chapter 5, I want to read one verse as we begin. The Bible says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Uh, in our big series on the book of Ephesians, we began to focus a little more narrowly last week on the question, how can we know the will of the Lord? And so last week we dispelled some of the myths and we talked about some of the basics and we promised more to come. The Bible has much to say about how it is that we can discover God's will and we'll take the next step in that journey today. Now, I do want to review, I don't want to re-preach last week's message, but in case you weren't here or you just need a reminder, we said five or six very foundational things about knowing the Lord's will. We said, first of all, that God's will is never contrary to Scripture. What the Bible says, the Bible says, and God's will will never contradict that. We said, secondly, that God's will is not detailed before it is general. When people begin to think about the Lord's will, they're usually thinking about a very specific question. And there's nothing wrong with that. Should I marry this person or that person? Has God called me in the ministry? Uh, should I take this job or that job? Should I buy this house or that house? It's okay to ask those questions, but we have to understand that before we get to the very specific will of God, there are some very general principles about God's will. And we noticed last week that there are six places in scripture where the Bible says God's will is, and it tells us. And our first focus ought to be on those six things. We should go through the door of God's general will before we seek to go through God's door of his very specific will. The next foundational truth we learned is that God's will is not circumstantial. We learned that God's will is not incompatible with the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. And we discovered that God's will is not mysterious. God doesn't hide his will, waiting for us to solve some riddle before we can know what it is that he would like for us to do. But even after going through the basics of God's will, we still have the question, how can I discover the very specific, detailed will of God for some situation, some decision in life. Well, today I wanna to take the next step. And I'll tell you, there's gonna be another step. And I'll leave you frustrated today because I'm only gonna fill in about half the blanks. But it's either leave you frustrated or leave you hungry. So we can do half the blanks in 40 minutes or all the blanks in two hours. And I think all people would say, let's do half the blanks, okay? All right, so how are we gonna proceed? Well, ordinarily, a sermon would not be the place for us to discuss some intramural theological debate about some fine detail of theology. When we come together in this place for this time, we just wanna focus on the plain truth of God's word. But sometimes, to really understand an issue, we have to understand the issue from, 
from contrasting perspectives. Sometimes to understand an issue, we really do need to see the debates around the issue. I remember years ago in school, I was challenged uh, to, or required really, uh, to learn about the heresies, the falsehoods that grew up around the nature of Christ, knowing who Christ really is, these heresies that grew up in the first seven or eight centuries of the church. And so there would be these different heresies. There were a half dozen or so, things like modalism and Arianism and Apollinarianism and uh, Pelagianism, and you may or may not know what those are. But, but we would study the heresies, and then we would see how the church would come together and resolve these questions, and then the church would issue what they called a creed, maybe the, the Apostles' Creed, or, or the Creed of Nicaea, or Constantinople, or some other creed, and they would settle the issue. And so I was required to go and learn all of the different heresies, to see how the church resolved those heresies, and then to study the creed that the church developed. And I thought, this is an absolute, utter waste of time. I don't want to study all of this history. I just want to study the Bible. Just give me the Bible. Let me learn about Jesus from the Bible, and that'll be enough. But here's what I discovered. You really don't fully understand everything the Bible has to say about the nature of Christ until you see and study some of these heresies that have developed and how the church dealt with them. When I finished that study, that really I did at gunpoint, so to speak, when I finished that study, I knew more about what the Bible says about Christ than I ever knew before. Sometimes there's a benefit in seeing the controversy. So we're trying to answer the question, how do I know God's will? There is some controversy. So let me give you, in just a very simple description, the two sides of the controversy. Over the last three or four weeks, I have read a stack of books about this, just to try to gain a better understanding of what God's word has, has to say. So let me sum it up. On one side of this, there are those who teach that when we want to know God's will, we should search for some supernatural experience where God just speaks into our life. If we want to know God's will, let's listen for God to give us this inner voice. Let's Let's listen for God to give us some supernatural experience of his presence, and that's how we will discover God's will. And so I could give you a lot of names. You probably wouldn't be interested. Uh, Teresa of Avila, the interior castle, John of the Cross, the cloud of unknowing, uh, contemporary people like Richard Foster or Mark Batterson or some others. But this is, this is taught, and it's taught in churches every day. And so they would suggest some things that that I believe are very non-biblical, some rituals that you could go through to discover God's will. I've got a list of them here. One would be to empty your mind of everything, where you're not thinking about anything, you're not distracted by anything, and if you could just somehow empty your mind of all thoughts, then God could speak into you. And so another way 
you could repeat some brief phrase. Oftentimes it's what they call the Jesus prayer. And you could repeat this over and over and over and over until somehow you get into a trance-like state and that suspends rational thinking and then God will speak to you. And then they have alternative prayer practices like labyrinth prayer, breath prayer, centering prayer, dialogue prayer. And it's okay if you don't know what those are because none of them are in the Bible, but they're taught often. Uh, Or how about this? Because I hear of people doing this. Just ask God a direct yes or no question. Just ask him, God, should I do this? Should I take this job? And then just sit there silently for however long it takes until you hear God speak a yes, a no, or a wait. However long it takes, you just wait. And then there are those that suggest all kind of ascetical practices where you wear something uncomfortable or you do something uncomfortable to your body uh, just to make you hyper aware of what God is saying to you. And, And so that's what they teach. They point to some scripture passages like this. John 14, 26, where where Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things and remind us of all things. They would point to Acts chapter 8, where the angel speaks to Philip and tells him where to go. And oftentimes they look to 1 Kings 19, where Elijah hears from God in a still, small voice. And so they say, if you want to hear from God, it's some supernatural experience. That's what you should seek, and God will just speak to you. That's one side of the, of the debate. Now, the other side of the debate, the teachers would say that you should search for God's will, you should search for God's wisdom only in Scripture. They would say that God doesn't speak to us today. God doesn't give us peace. He doesn't uh, impress our hearts with something. He doesn't lead us in a certain direction. That God only speaks through his word, the pages of scripture. This is the only place that you can hear from God. And this, this would be people historically like John Calvin, maybe more contemporary people like John MacArthur, and a whole bunch of others. This is a very, very common view today. These people would be very uncomfortable with somebody saying, well, there was just a verse that seemed to jump off the page at me. They'd be very uncomfortable hearing somebody say, well, God gave me a sign, or God opened a door, or I just had a peace from the Lord about this, or I felt led by the Holy Spirit to do something. And then they point to some scriptures as well. They'd point to a passage like Jude 3, where the Bible says that the content of our faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. They point to verses like Revelation uh, 22, which says, if anyone adds to the words of the Bible, that man should be cursed. They would point to 2 Peter chapter 1, where it says that God has already given us everything we need to live a godly life. And they point to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And they would say the word of God is all you need. Now, which side is correct? Well, first of all, when we enter into one of these theological debates, It's just something we should remember. 
This is usually not good, by, good guys against bad guys. This is usually not people who love Jesus versus people who don't love Jesus. It's usually not people who have read their Bibles and people who haven't read their Bibles. I think sometimes we'll hear somebody say something and we'll think, wow, if they would have just read the book of John, they would have known that wasn't true. Well, all of these people have read the book of John, okay? They all love Jesus. They've read the Bible more and understand more and are more educated than any of us, maybe all of us. And they still come to two different conclusions. So how can we navigate that and be faithful to Scripture? That's what we want to be faithful to, faithful to Scripture. Here it is, and this is important. There are two components here. First, there are, and this is going to be simple. First, there are instructions in the Bible that tell us what to do. And those are the things that we should do and that we are responsible to do. And then secondly, instructions, that's number one. Secondly, there are some experiences described in the Bible, historical experiences that show us what God has done at particular times and with particular people. Do you understand the two things? There are instructions that God has given us what we should do. And then there are some examples of things that God has chosen to do for his purposes at certain times and with certain people. Now the problem comes when we get these two things mixed up. If we teach people to pursue the experiences and not follow the instructions, if we teach people to pursue this voice from God, this supernatural experience, instead of teaching them to read and study God's word, then what we end up teaching people to do is simply to access their own imagination. If you just pray and ask God a question and sit silently long enough, you know what will happen? Your imagination will give you an answer. And you won't be able to tell the difference between your imagination and anything else that might be in your life. If we teach people to pursue an experience with God apart from God's word, we're just teaching people to access their own imagination. But... If we teach people to study God's word and not be open to what the Holy Spirit may do in their lives, then we really deny the value of the Holy Spirit. We make the Trinity the Father, the Son, and the Bible. That's not the Trinity, right? The Trinity is not the Father, the Son, and the Bible. The Trinity is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has a role to play in our lives. And so here's how we seek God's will. We need to understand the instructions. Here is how we pursue it. And then we need to understand that God's Holy Spirit may choose at different times and in different ways to grant us just in his grace to grant us some special uh, word from, from the Lord. There's something we do, and then there's something we may experience. So let's start with what we need to do. And then we're going to save the experience to next week because I don't want to uh, go over it so quickly that we don't fully understand. So 
point number one, what do we do? We pursue the Lord's will through the Lord's word. How do we know God's will? Well, we do something. We pursue, we seek to know the Lord's will, but we seek to know it through God's word. Now, as I've already said, and I'm repeating myself because I think it's the confusion here that that creates the unnecessary debate. There are instructions, commands, admonitions, here's what you should do. And then there are descriptions of events in history, and we have to understand the difference in the two. If we erase this distinction, we're gonna cause all kinds of problems. Let me illustrate it like this. There are two ways you can learn to drive. You could learn to drive by looking at the instructions, the laws. There are laws about how fast you can drive called speed limit, right? There are laws that say when the traffic light is red, you stop and you remain stopped until it turns green. Okay, there are laws. And you can let those laws be the standard for how you drive. Or you could decide that you just simply want to observe how a police officer drives when he or she is responding to an emergency. Now, how would a police officer drive? Responding to an emergency, trying to protect someone's safety? That police officer may very well exceed the speed limit. That police officer uh, may not stop at a red light. Or if he does, he may, he may slowly drive on through it because he has a different priority. Now, if you choose to pattern your driving, to make your standard the driving of a police officer responding to an emergency, what's gonna happen? You're gonna to get to meet one of those police officers. <laughs> and it may not be a pleasant meeting because you're gonna get a ticket and you can tell him, well, this is my standard. And he would say, no, that experience, what you've seen is not your standard. The law is your standard. And it says you stop when the light is red. Now, in the Christian life, we have to live by the standard. The Bible says, pursue God's will like this. We don't pursue God's will based on some historical example. We're going to talk about that, and it has great value. I'm not saying that God cannot speak to you in that way, or that he has not spoken to you in that way, or that he has not spoken to your pastor in that way. We'll talk about that next week. But I'm saying we don't start with the example, with the history, we start with the instruction, with the command. Somebody will say, well, pastor, in the New Testament, there are eight examples of the apostle Paul experiencing some supernatural word from the Lord to give him direction. And you'd be correct. There are exactly eight. But you'd be wrong if you conclude from that that when you want to know whether you go to the left or to the right, that you should seek that experience. No, Paul didn't seek the experience and neither should you. God may choose to give you that experience, but we seek God's will the way the Bible says to seek God's will. Well, what is that way? Well, you can turn there, or we'll show this to you on the screen, but I think the best verse to go to is Romans 12, 2. This is one of the most important verses in all the New Testament. Paul says, do not be conformed to this age, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. Now, we'll leave that verse up for just a moment because I want you to see it closely. He says, if we will do something, then we will know the will of God. How do you know the will of God? This verse tells us explicitly. He says, if you do something, then you will know. You will know, will know, will know the perfect will of God. What do you do? You be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the instruction. That's what we do. I think we too often are more interested in divination than we are transformation. Do you know the difference? Divination is when you just hear from the divine in some special way. God is more interested in transformation. God is more interested in you being transformed so that you will be conformed to the nature of Christ than that you just be informed. It's transformation. That's God's goal for your life. Let me show it to you in one more verse. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, I pray this. He's, he's talking about the, the Christians at Philippi. He's talking about them knowing God's will. He says, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior. What does that mean? He says, I want you to know the will of God. To approve the things that are superior, that's the will of God. And may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. How does he tell us in the beginning of that passage? that those people would know God's will. He prays that they will grow in knowledge and discernment. He doesn't pray that they'll have some supernatural experience. He doesn't pray that they will hear a word from the Lord. He doesn't pray that they will have some um, prophecy of knowledge. He, he says, no, I pray that you'll be transformed, that you will you'll increase in your knowledge and your discernment. That's what God wants us to do. That's how God wants us to, to know his will with renewed minds. If your mind is renewed, then you will know the will of God. Now, let me boil all of this down to the very basic. God speaks primarily and authoritatively through his word. Now, hear me. God speaks primarily and with authority through his word. The primary role of the Holy Spirit, the function of the Holy Spirit, is to help us understand God's Word. It's, it is, it's to see into the heart of God, help us see into the heart of God through God's Word. It's to transform our minds through the Word. The Word is the way God speaks to us, and the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to help us to understand the Word. And so if you want to know God's will, don't go quiet. Don't sit there in silence for 30 minutes and empty your mind in the hopes that God is going to speak some thoughts into your thoughts. That's not what the Bible commands you to do. Don't do some ritual that you read in some book. Don't do anything that would just stretch your imagination. What should you do? Saturate yourself in God's word and let the Holy Spirit transform your heart. And then the Romans 12, 2 promise that then you will know 
the perfect will of God. That's how you know. I was watching a video a week or two ago of a woodworker, and he was, um, he had a piece of wood, and he was trying to form it into the shape of an arch. He was making the top of a window that was curved or something. And so he was, he wanted to take this straight piece of wood and form it into an arch. So here's what he did. You, you may have known this. I, I, I'm not sure I did. He soaked it in water for a long time at a very high pressure. And then after a long time, days I believe, maybe longer, he pulled the, the wood out of the water and he pressed it onto the mold and it conformed to the shape that he needed. That's exactly what God wants to do. He wants to saturate you with his word. And then he wants to press you on the mold of Christ and see you conformed to Christ, to the character of Christ. And he says, then you will know the will of God. I've got a stack of books in my office, not because I believe them, but the pastor ought to read these things, with all kind of weirdo, cuckoo, crazy things that you can do to hear from God. But what the Bible says do is be transformed by God's word and God's spirit. And then you will know the will of God. It's just that simple. Now, I know that there's some pushback. There are two reasons why people don't do this, me included, okay? I'm, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to anyone. There are two reasons why we don't take this path. One is we just think it is too hard, and the other, we just don't think we have enough time. So let me talk about that. Is saturating yourself in God's Word too hard to do? Well, no. What's hard? Bad decisions. Okay. You want to you wanna have a hard life? Just make some bad decisions. You want to have a hard life? Marry the wrong person? Make some bad financial decisions. Uh, mismanage some significant disagreement with your spouse. Join a church that doesn't honor God's word. It's, it's bad decisions that lead to hard times, not being saturated in, in God's word. Really, it comes down to this. We have a choice. I can either saturate myself in God's word and I can have my mind transformed by God's word and by the Holy Spirit. Or I can just be led by my own deceitful heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? You know what? Deceit means deceit is different from just lying. Deceit is different from just spouting some falsehood. Deceit means that it's a good lie. I mean, not a good lie. There are no good lies, but an effective lie. See, you see, your heart will mislead you, but it, it doesn't just lie to you. It deceives you. It makes you think it's telling the truth. It makes you think, I heard a word from God. This coincidence must be God speaking. This little thing over here, that must be the Lord. You see, you have a wicked heart and it will deceive you. We can either be led by our hearts or we can be, we can be led by a heart transformed by the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Now, the second pushback 
do I really have time uh, in my schedule, with my responsibilities, with my hectic life, do I have time to saturate myself in God's Word? Well, I want to tell you about a book that I read, and bear with me a moment, this will have a point. A book I read over Christmas, A.J. Blame, the author, the title of the book, The Accidental President, Harry S. Truman and the Four Months That Changed the World. I read really weird books, I know. But this was interesting. It's the story, and it's a brand new book. Excuse me, I'm losing my voice a little bit. Uh, it's a story, the historical account of how Truman became president and what happened in the first 100 days of his presidency. Some historians suggest that that was the most critical 100 days in the history of human civilization. That's arguable, I know, but they were important days. So let me tell you the story in brief. Uh, Truman was the vice president, but not the vice president in the sense that we're familiar with today. Uh, he was vice president, but he was the prototypical ordinary man. He had no college degree. He had very little executive experience. The only thing he had ever really done in his life is he was the co-manager of a men's clothing store that wasn't very successful. Uh, he didn't have enough money to buy a house. And so he lived in an apartment, a middle-class apartment in Washington, D.C., not the vice president's residence. They didn't have that back then. But he just lived in an apartment, like the second or third floor, you know, pulled up, um, walked up the stairs, stuck his key in the door. Um, he had... Um, he had some responsibilities in the morning. When he would wake up, his wife, who was a secretary in the Senate, one of the Senate offices, she had to leave early to go to work, and he then would cook breakfast, clean the kitchen, and then he gave his youngest daughter a ride to school. That was the morning responsibilities of the vice president. He had been to the White House but only a couple of times. And he didn't know the president and he didn't know any, really any of the people in the White House. But on April the 12th, 1945, Theodore Roosevelt died. And Truman was sworn in as the 33rd president at 7.09 that evening. You know what he did at 7.09? He went home. I don't mean to the White House, I mean he went back to the apartment, walked up the stairs, stuck his key in the door, uh, his neighbors uh, arranged a potluck so he'd have something to eat that night, and he went immediately to bed so that he could get up in the morning, get his daughter to school, and start his day as President of the United States. Now, what was on his plate when he woke up that next morning? Well, we were in the middle of World War II, and he is now in charge of World War II, and we were fighting for our very survival on the east against Germany and on the west against Japan. And in the next 100 days, let me just read you a list of the things that Truman had to decide. He had to manage and decide these issues. Number one, the development of the nuclear bomb. He didn't even know about the nuclear bomb <laughs> until he got up that morning and somebody told him. And it was close, but it wasn't finished. They still had to make some important decisions. Truman had to step in, make those decisions. He also, 
uh, had to oversee the founding of the United Nations, the fall of Berlin, the Battle of Okinawa, the firebombing of Japan, uh, which killed hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, he had to oversee the Nazi surrender uh, with all the complications of Russia getting involved and those complications uh, are even important today with the battle in Ukraine. Uh, he had to oversee the liberation of the concentration camps. He had to decide whether or not to drop nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which ultimately killed over 350,000 people. He had to manage the mass starvation in Europe, which killed more people than the nuclear bombs did. He had to lead the Potsdam Conference. He had to oversee the surrender of Imperial Japan and the start of the Cold War. That's his first 100 days. Can you imagine an accidental president had to guide the entire world and all of human civilization in arguably the most pivotal three to four months in human history. Now, why do I tell you that story? Well, while I was reading the book, and I think this was the intent of the author, I couldn't help but wonder, what would I do? What would I do? Every page I would turn, I would wonder, what would I have done? What would I have done? So, of course, I will not likely to ever be the accidental president in the middle of a world war, but I have some things in my life, just like you have some things in your life. I have some responsibilities, you have some responsibilities. It made me ask, well, how am I handling the responsibilities that I have today? And I thought, well, should I give more time to this? And should I give more time to that? And how should I organize my day? But then I thought, this is not the first time this whole Roosevelt thing, accidental president thing, this is not the first time in history that this has happened. Did you know? It actually happened 3,250 years earlier. And you can read about this in Joshua chapter one. You don't have to turn there, you can. Uh, but let me just tell you the story. Moses was the leader of God's people, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, God's hope, God's promises of all he would do for the world, for eternity, through the nation of Israel. But times were so precarious. Israel had left Egypt and there are between two and three million people and they are stuck in the desert. There are nomads in the desert living in tents, struggling to have enough to eat and drink. The whole nation is just on the brink. It could collapse at any moment. And then to make things worse, this nation had come right up to the edge of the promised land and there was an enemy there that the nation of, uh, of, e of Israel, these nomads, these desert wanderers had no chance to defeat this enemy. This enemy on paper could have wiped them out just at any moment. It would have been over quickly and the whole plan of God would have come undone. Moses was the leader. Moses died. And God elevates Joshua to command. And Joshua becomes the commander of God's country at a time that was so precarious. They didn't have food. They didn't have water. Desert nomads facing an impossible enemy. Joshua becomes the commander. God says uh, over and over in Joshua chapter 1, be strong and courageous, Joshua. 
And you know, that's one of those commands. I'm not second guessing the Lord, of course, but be strong and courageous. How do you even do that? You know, it's like when I tell my kids, listen, don't be afraid. Well, you can't just not be afraid. How can you be strong and courageous? And I'm sure that Joshua was thinking the same thing. How would he, how would he deal with this? Where would he start? Who would he meet with? How would he make these decisions? And then in one verse, God says, if you will do something, then I promise you, I will give you the wisdom, I will give you the direction, all that you need for perfect success, if you'll just do one thing. Now, don't show the verse yet, guys. I, I want to try to build some suspense. What do you think the one thing was? Did God uh, tell him to reorganize the government? Did God tell him to create a new org chart for the military? Did God, you know, explain the Pareto principle or the Eisenhower chart? Did, did God tell him to work harder? No, God just told him to do one thing. Now, I want you to think before I tell you what this is. There's the two busiest people on the wor- in the world, in history, I think, Truman and Joshua. <laughs> so however busy you are, you're not as busy as Truman was busy for 100 days and Joshua was busy for 100 days. So what does God tell Joshua? You want to know? Show us the verse. Joshua 1.8. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it when? Day and night. So that you may be careful to observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in everything you do. God says, Joshua, few people in history have been as busy as you are. Few people in history has ha- have, had, have been charged with making as critical of a decision as the decisions that you're going to have to make. You need to talk to a lot of people. You need to do a lot of things. So here's, here's how to start. Every day, all day, day and night, just read the Word of God. Just read the Word of God. Now why would he say that? He seems like he needs to be meeting with his generals. Seems like he needs to be uh, studying the, the defenses of Jericho. Seems like he needs to be figuring out how to plant some corn. <laughs> Read the Bible. Here's why God said it. Romans 12, 2. That if our heart can be transformed by God's word, then we will know the perfect will of God. Let's remember... Christians, that we have a Father who loves us. And that has led to us having a Savior who has died for us and made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father. And then that has made a way for us to have the indwelling of the Spirit of God who will transform our minds through this Word so that we will know the good and perfect will of the Father. So, we're going to get to part two next week if the Lord allows, but let me leave you with this quick challenge. How can I do what Joshua did? How can I be successful under the pressure and with the responsibilities that I face and you face I should saturate myself in God's Word. First of all, saturate yourself in the Bible and meditate. That means you read a few verses and you ask, 
What do these verses say about how I can honor God with my life? And read a few more verses. What do those verses say about how I can honor God with my life? And read a few more verses. Read the Bible and meditate. Listen to sermons and meditate. Take the sermon that you hear on Sunday. If you'd like the long version of the sermon with all the stuff I left out, just go to our website or go to noeldeer.com on Monday, it's there. But take the sermon and ask, what has my pastor highlighted in scripture this week that I can use to honor the Lord with my life? Read the Bible and meditate. Listen to a sermon and meditate. Let's saturate ourselves in God's word and then let's let God, God's spirit, press us against the mold of Jesus and conform us to him so that our transformed minds will know the perfect will of God. Heads bowed, eyes closed. You know, this is only for those people who are children of God. All that starts with recognizing that we're guilty of sin and hopeless apart from what Christ has done. Trusting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and asking him to forgive us and surrendering our lives to him. That's where it begins. But church, once we are adopted into the family of God, we have this incredible resource of the Holy Spirit. Not to give us just some uh, supernatural impression one way or the other. We'll talk about that next week. But we have something so much more valuable and reliable than that. We have the Holy Spirit within us as children of God to transform our minds so that the promise of God will be true, that we will know the perfect will of God. Father, help me, help us all to be saturated and transformed by your spirit through the word of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, respond.